The name's Bond, James Bond. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. This is Anthony. And this is James, and today we're doing Skyfall, which is both of our favorite James Bond films starring Daniel Craig, directed by Sam Mendes, was released in 2012. Uh, James Bond's loyalty to M is tested when her past comes back to haunt her. When MI6 comes under attack, 007 must track down and destroy the threat, no matter how personal the cost. This film won two Oscars. Uh, it got Best Original Song and Best Sound Editing, nominated for Best Cinematography, obviously the GOAT Roger Deakins, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Original Score nominations as well. The best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is go to patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast and become a patron of the show. Patrons get specific perks like personalized messages, personalized videos, monthly shoutouts on the podcast for top tier patrons, and sneak peeks behind the upcoming episodes. It was also wildly successful. It was, uh, I think it grossed uh, $1.1 billion at the box office. It was uh, by far the most successful Bond movie, even adjusted for inflation. And it's also one of the highest grossing UK films ever made. Um, so it was a monstrous success at the box office and catapulted Craig's Bond as the status of being probably the most loved Bond in recent memory. And I think it's just a flat-out fantastic movie. If you take the character and the synonymous name of Bond out of it, it's just an amazing film. Yeah, that's why I have a poster of it on my wall because Skyfall, my favorite James Bond. Oh, I have Bond. a poster of it on my wall. Oh, yeah. You know what? You're just jealous because you have to look at it all the time and you wish you had it. I don't mind looking at Daniel Craig's all face. All right. Can I talk about Skyfall? Please. Yeah. But Skyfall, again, is my favorite Bond. It's I think it's one of my favorite movies made in the last 20 years, for sure, the century. Um, the cinematography is beautiful and very artistic by Roger Deakins. I mean, this guy's last decade has been off the charts, probably the best decade in cinematography history from a from a from a DP and it's just incredible what he did with, with the filmmaking in this movie and taking these massive action set pieces and making them look so creative is he's such a phenomenal cinematographer. Yeah. Cause Deacons, he spent so much time over the past 30 years making smaller independent films, mostly with like the Coen brothers and filmmakers like that. But he started working with Sam Mendes um, when he made road to, road to perdition. Um, I think he might've done American beauty. I actually don't think he did. I, he definitely did road to perdition. That's where it started. I think, and Shawshank's a big one he did yeah, too. Shawshank's, but that was uh, Frank Darabont. Yeah. yeah. And to see his artistry on a massive scale, like Blade Runner and then with this film, um, you can see how talented he is because he makes these big budget movies make look like no others. And it's astounding what he accomplished. And Sam Mendes is also an incredible director. Um, and he brought his team onto, onto the Bond stratosphere where, he, first of all, he brought... Uh, Thomas Newman, who's always done his music, and then Roger Deakins, who's shot most of his films. And then and he also brought his production designer, Dennis Gassner. And this is a crew that has been with Sam Mendes throughout most of his career. And they're all masters of their own crafts. And to see them use uh, being used to at such a large scale, you can see how well they work together. It's a very important job that production designer they're in charge of, you know, what the film's going to look like, these sets and these 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 locations and everything like that. And so it's it's super important. It helps create that aesthetic with the cinematographer and the director. And I mean, just the opening shot of this film, it's so bold, especially from, for a huge budget film to do it out of focus shot with the main character walking to the camera in focus. But that's kind of like the pair that Roger Deakins and Sam Mendes have when they're when they're making a film like this and they just have so much confidence in their filmmaking. Yeah, they're doing in, independent artistry, artistic cinema in a Bond movie and that had never been done before because we grew up watching Pierce Brosnan as Bond and uh, we loved him. and Because we were kids. Yeah, because yeah. we were kids and all the other Bonds before. they There was a flair to them and you didn't take them very seriously in... Um, the filmmaking itself, yes, it's high quality filmmaking from the best crews 
you can, money can pay for, but still they were not considered artistic. And then when Sam Mendes came into the fold, because even Casino Royale, great movie, but still it wasn't like super art, artsy. Uh, really well shot though. Uh, it's well directed as well. Um, and the same thing with um, Quantum of Solace looks great, but Sam Mendes and his team brought the artistry of cinema into the Bond franchise. And I think it revitalized people's idea of what a Bond film can be. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up, the artistry of, of the Bond franchise with this film, because you could probably say that for the last 22 Bond films, or even before Daniel Craig, obviously, I mean, the first one was made in 1962, I think. Bond is generally, one of the reasons it survives so long, this franchise, is it, it is hip to whatever's cool at the time and like they 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 adapt to what's popular i mean that's why there's there's a james bond where he's in space and there's a james bond like he's riding a tidal wave with a parachute so like they're kind of you can kind of <laughs> tell was what was going <laughs> the wardrobe was that, was that was really <laughs> everyone was doing that parasailing on a tsunamis <laughs> but uh, in antarctica you could tell basically um the aesthetic of of the western culture through a bond film and i think what they did with skyfall thematically is they kind of became their own fad in a way and started their own new kind of James Bond movie because of course there are two Daniel Craig movies before this but this one's a lot different it's probably the the most unique Bond film ever made because again bringing the thematic element to the artistry of the film and the filmmaking that links with the characters and you know one of the the main themes of the film is uh, resurrection and then also this idea that it's an old like Bond stuck in a young man's game. He's he's getting a little too old, and so a lot of the shots and a lot of the set design and a lot of the character actions and, and dialogue, it's all tied together to these same themes and motifs. This is an, yet another example of the impact that The Dark Knight had on cinema, where before The Dark Knight there was action blockbuster movies, and but at, but that, there's a, there's a pre Dark Knight and a post Dark Knight. I believe there's like a cinema change in terms of big budget filmmaking with that film and other filmmakers took note of what Nolan did with that film to bring the artistry to bring real cinema into these epic scale large productions just because it has a 200 million dollar budget doesn't mean it doesn't have to be a fantastic piece of cinema you know what I mean and then that influence of that film didn't just stretch to comic book movies it stretched throughout all of big budget filmmaking, large scale filmmaking. And then this film, it's Quantum of Solace kind of cop, like drew from it a little bit, but I think this film, especially in terms of how it was shot, uh, how the story unfolds and, and the villain as well, because Silva played by Javier Bardem, he, uh, he has a very similar uh, plot as the Joker in the Dark Knight where he plans to get himself captured. He dresses up as a, a police officer to try and kill a member of government. There's a lot of thematic elements that they drew from The Dark Knight, and so I think that this movie is a testament to the impact that The Dark Knight had on cinema. Hey you, aspiring filmmakers and screenwriters, Raiders of the Lost Podcast has paired up with Writer Duet, the new standard for screenwriting software. Head on over to writerduet.com slash raiders to subscribe to a 30-day free trial of any one of Writer Duet's subscription services. We know many of you listening are aspiring screenwriters and filmmakers. If you know anything about screenwriting, you know that the formatting is very strange and complicated and just straight weird. If your script isn't up to snuff in terms of the formatting standard, it's going to get thrown in the trash. Writer Duet makes the process streamlined and easy with the cloud-based access from any device, anywhere. Famous users have also been using Writer Duet 
including Jim Ools, who wrote Fight Club, Christopher Ford, who wrote Spider-Man Homecoming. It's free to sign up with Writer Duet using our special promo. All you have to do is go to writerduet.com slash Raiders. Again, writerduet.com slash Raiders to sign up for a special 30-day free trial of any one of their subscriptions. Absolutely. I mean, also to keep going, uh, the hero loses everything at one point in the film. Both villains are seriously deformed from violence and pain in their past, and it's used as a as a motivation for revenge and creating chaos. And also, they're both kind of always one step ahead and highly intelligent and have these master plans kind of worked out where everyone else is trying to play catch-up. But also, I think that, again, this is the most unique James Bond movie because it's very, you're right, it's very similar to Dark Knight, but also we see a new vulnerability in the character that we've never seen before. I mean, this entire film is about James Bond loses a step. James Bond should face retirement. James Bond technically dies and, and could follow that life of of living off ha- being a dead man. And I mean, James Bond physically isn't there. He fails all of his his tests. He fails the psychological exams. And it's, it's really about him. Uh, he has to either accept the past and accept his... His life, that it's, his career is almost over, or he has to kind of face all that. And like he says in the film, and again, one of the main themes of the movie is resurrection and resurrect and reinvent himself, which he can only do through death. And the other major theme, which you mentioned earlier of this film, it's the old ways versus the new ways. And you'll see multiple times, the characters literally say, sometimes the old ways are the best or, or the new way is the way to be. Because it's this conf- this conflict between James, like you said, he's older now. It's a version of Bond we haven't seen where he's weathered, he's he's worn out. Um, like you said, he's lost a step, and it brought a great amount of vulnerability. And there's a lot of really great visual and storyline motifs that... Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply depict this theme for James. My favorite one is the the first that meeting with Q when they meet in the art museum and and uh they're both looking at that painting of a old warship being dropped back to shore and the and Q points out um, that it's like it's sad to see this ship this old warship being pulled in because it it translates the inevitability of time. And this is literally I think a representation of Bond's character where he is that old warship that's being pulled back to shore because his time's done. And so that's what his character's going through in this film. And the, the other, there are several other moments where it, they address the old ways um, and how James doesn't quite fit in with the new world or he's struggling to. And the, this list is, um, he fails his first mission. I mean, he gets shot by the bad guy. Before Naomi Harris, uh, Moneypenny shoots him, he gets shot by the bad guy, which never happens. Um, he, he, so he essentially fails that mission because 
he, he gets on the train and he isn't able to stop the guy. Um, MI6 wants Bond out because he's aging and weathered and he's failing his exams. Um, M is also being forced to retire. So she's also part of the old ways, which is being pushed out by the new ways. So M and Bond have a lot in common in this film. Um, he uses the straight edge razor to shave his, to shave his face. Um, the painting of the ship, he drives the old Aston Martin from the uh, early films. Um, and then for the tech in this movie, all he gets is a, a gun and then a, a little radio, which is very simple and kind of harkens back to the old films. And then um, at the end of the film, he kills Silva with a knife. Not with a gun or any piece of tech, but just with the oldest weapon there is, a knife. And also he uses the guns, the headlight guns on that Aston Martin, which is oh, like yeah. the original tech of those old James Bond films. And and I love how you brought up M because there's this bond between M and Bond. It's almost like a familial relationship. It's kind of like mother and son in a way. And this relationship, although it's extended for 22 films before this, it's the, it's so great to see it visited in such a personal and intense way because this is the, the seventh time that Judy Dench appeared as M in her last time. Uh, spoilers alert. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, she was in a couple of the Prozner movies. But, but but it's great to see it because she's such an integral figure in Bond's life, fictionally, obviously. And, and she's so important to him whether they want to admit it or not and she's really the only authority that he he respects besides obviously the the palace and and the queen and you're right they're very similar in this film because both m and bond they both have lost a step you know that's that's one of the reasons why mallory played by ray fines he's coming in because just like bond lost a step in that opening mission and gets shot and and then eventually gets killed M misses a step. She's the one that lost the hard drive and to begin with. She's the one that let the hard drive get out in the open. And they both stubbornly refuse to accept that it's almost the time, almost the end of the line. And they were once this unstoppable team, like they could get anything accomplished, but they won't accept that it's almost time to end their careers. And also, they're kind of being coaxed by this mystery villain and back into the game in a way to kind of to, to look past, look at their past and look on their sins M also has to struggle with the fact that she's the one that had the pick, the trigger pulled on James. So she has to deal with the fact that James Bond is dead because of her, even though he's an expendable agent. And then James has to come to the uh, come to accept in his afterlife in a way that he has to understand that he was an expendable agent and it's nothing personal. And that's one of the reasons why he comes back to M once MI6 is blown up by Silva because he does care about her and he understands her decisions are still meant for the greater good. I think uh, the most interesting character development for Bond is when he fixes his death because after uh, Money Penny shoots him, um, it sets him up for the ability to, um, once he's presumed dead, to just stay dead. And, and he kind of does that with Casino Royale with the relationship with uh, Ava Green's character. I think it's more of a vacation. Yeah, that, that's like a honeymoon in a yeah, way. But yeah, he yeah. still is running from his from his job. Yeah. But, I mean, this is different. But it's not just running from his job. He's also been running from his past. And we finally see this new set, new facet to the character. Um, like you mentioned, this is the most vulnerable he's ever been but this film works so well it's not just because it's a great spy action movie but because we finally have a personal storyline arc for bond deeply personal where it, his past is brought to light and we learned that he had a troubled upbringing and he had um he dealt with um great turmoil as a boy and that has affected him as an adult um he has he had serious trauma when he grew up and uh, the reason why he he escaped to Turkey and was uh, living as a presumed dead person because he was escaping his past and he didn't want to deal with his past. And so it was this character who goes through this major transformation in this film because uh, in the first act of the film, 
he abandons himself because he doesn't want to deal with what his what his past has been. He just uh, shuts off and and starts over somewhere else. And then by the end of the film, he finally, through the help of M and his exper- experience of um, battling with Silva, he grows to understand that he has to accept his past, deal with it, and then move on. And that's literally represented in when he blows up his own house that he grew up in. So at the, at the third act of the film, the climax, he blows up his house, and that's him moving on from his past, finally being able to, to be a better person because of it and accepting it and going for on from here. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by our friends at manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Two million men are using Manscaped products because they are phenomenal. Their Lawnmower 3.0 Groomer is the best clippers I've ever used in my life. They have a built-in light. They're, they're waterproof. You can use them in the shower, sensitive to the touch, not to mention their deodorizers, their colognes, their, their boxer briefs, everything they've sent us. Again, use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from Manscaped.com. Yeah, it's, it's, again, it's a resurrection. It's a rebirth. It's just like Batman Begins with Bruce Wayne when uh, Rousley Ghoul blows down his man- burns down his mansion and he says he's going to build it brick for brick. That's a re- rebirth for Bruce Wayne to become Batman. This is a rebirth resurrection for James Bond to become James Bond again. And I think it's a little more than just h- escaping his past. I think he's also, what I said earlier, I think he's very upset about um, M pulling the trigger on him and, and not trusting him to finish the job on the train because he, he was adamant with her saying that he could get the job done. And because she lost faith in him, and I think he also didn't understand how expendable he was, that's when he comes back, when he accepts his expendability. And, and he, he, he accepts that he's losing a step. Yeah, he yeah. Accepts, I think he accepts both things. Yeah. And also, he has a lot of loyalty. He has, like, the trust he still has for her is extraordinary to come back and, and to work again for this person who pulled the trigger on you. And ironically, Silva is the exact opposite, where both were betrayed in a way by M. Um, they both are treated expendable, but Silva takes it much more of a personal affront. And he was chosen by M to be taken prisoner to free other prisoners. So I think they got like five or six other agents. And that's why he builds up this deep resentment because when he finally realizes that M was the one who betrayed him, she did it because obviously he was already morally corrupt. He was running his own agents, but he takes it as as the ultimate betrayal, and that's why he's filled with so much rage. And the difference between Silva and Bond, ultimately, is their loyalty to their country. Because when Bond is living in Turkey, when he sees the news footage of the terrorist attack, that's what brings him back to London, because he wants to stop whoever did this. Whereas Silva didn't love his country, and that's why he was running his own agents and doing his own thing on the side, and also why he is he did, he couldn't accept what M did to him as just part of the job. Well, Silva wasn't from England. I th- he's a spy. I think he's from Spain, I think, was his, yeah, yeah. his background. Yeah. So, I mean, he was kind of a... Well, love of MI6. But he was loyalty, an MI6. Yeah, MI, yeah, loyalty to MI6. Yeah, because he mean, was, a, yeah. like she said, a glowing MI6 agent. And I, obviously, we've always said, uh, the better the villain, the better the movie. And Javier Bardem's uh, Raul Silva is a fantastic villain. Um, he blew us away with this movie. He's easily one of the most memorable Bond villains of all time. And his performance is so surprising because obviously he's famous for No Country for Old Men where he played one of the most intimidating characters ever put on film. And then uh, with Silva, Javier is playful and he speaks with like this high-pitched tone and uh, he has a very soft voice and 
Um, he's very sensual, and he on the surface he doesn't look very threatening. You know what I mean? He he looks very non-threatening on the surface, but uh, in reality and deep down, he he is a a, a killer and he is a, a master manipulator. And I think this is a fantastic performance. And most importantly, his motivation obviously is is a vengeance and rage and anger, but he also is different in James in terms of. He's technologically advanced. He's living in that young man's world. He's living with the tech. He can do just like how Q teases Bond, basically saying he can do more in his pajamas before his first cup of Earl Grey than James could do with an entire year in the fur in the field. Same thing with Silva. Silva even tries to. In I think there's like a few points of attack where Silva on this great in interrogation scene, he tries to corrupt Bond to come to his side. Where he uses the sensuality that you talked about earlier. I think that was one way to try to get into James. And to try to corrupt him. Another one was talking about how he can pick his own missions. He can do anything he wants. Uh, just a couple of clicks. I can do this. I can do that. So Silva's living as that. He's still an old. He's kind of an old man, but he's living in that young man's world. Whereas James can't really adapt with that. And he's also trying to turn Bond against M. Silva has an unbelievable introduction to this film, um, and I think it's. I mean, it has to have been Roger Deakins' idea. I mean, it must be. Where, so they're in that large room that large building where all of the computers are, are are lined up and and bond is tied up in a chair and then across the room like 200 feet away an elevator starts uh lowering and then silva exits and then the way deacon shoots this is he doesn't throw a, a close-up on silva or bring the camera closer to him um for this entire scene and what happens is silva leaves the elevator and then slowly approaches james he walks about it's got to be like 200 feet as at least to James, and while he's approaching James, he gives this great monologue about the two rats that were left out of the colony of rats, and um, they learned how to eat each other. And it's like a three-minute monologue, and for the entire sequence, Deacons doesn't move the camera. It stays over, it stays behind James's shoulder, wide, and then Silva starts out as a tiny, tiny person on the frame, and the more he speaks and the, and the further he walks, he grows larger and larger and larger in the frame until he finally meets meets James and and steps right up to him. And then it's they timed this perfectly. Actually, the monologue was timed to get this camera movement where once Silva steps up to James, the camera tilts up. Perfect timing for the last sentence of his monologue. And it's an unbelievable shot. So simple and so memorable. In the the story of the rats, it's it's very metaphorical and symbolic and. To these two characters because can i tell a story real quick tell a story uh two so, little mice <laughs> two little mice <laughs> swim in a bucket of cream <laughs> that's not catch me if you can't reference yeah so silva's grandmother had an island and it was a paradise to them but it eventually was infested with rats and so they were met with a problem how do you get rats off an island they filled an oil drum with coconut to lure the rats in though none could escape and once it filled up they didn't burn it they left it to let the rats get hungry until one by one they began to eat each other until there were only two left. Then you release these two rats into the wild, the last ones, because now all they eat is rat. So you've changed their nature. And Silva's monologue in his, in his story, it's a metaphor, he explains, of what M has done to both of them. M has turned James and Silva into the final two rats, these these killers, the last breed of their kind of agent, and they're they're almost in a way forced to hunt each other. And Silva, I think one of his main motivations in in acts of rage and vengeance is he's he's motivated 
because he blames M for creating who he is. And he's driven by that rage and vengeance and he acts impulsively. But James explains that he's not like those two rats. He's, he's separate because he's made his own decisions in his life. And, and really what Silva's trying to say is that typical villain to hero monologue is you and I are not so different after all. I also think that Silva is fueled by the betrayal more than anything because the way he talks about M, he calls her mother a lot. And he also mentions that he was her favorite long before James. And I, so I, I think that Silva ha harbored a lot of pride in uh, M's of approval and affection of him for being a great agent. And I think that he viewed M as a kind of a mother to him. And so when she did betray him, it um, unhinged him. And I think that betrayal is what has motivated him more than anything. And also being be betrayed by your own mother. This episode is also sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our special promo code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the number one place to get your movie posters online today. If you're checking us out on YouTube, you'll see that our set is decked out with all these posters that MoviePosters.com sent us. This is high quality. They do every size, framing, backlighting, whatever you want. They can handle your poster needs. We also have a special promotion with MoviePosters.com. James and I created our own special custom movie posters. We are... We had a lot of fun doing these. We did a, a Shining poster. We did a Lethal Weapon poster. And then we did a custom Raiders of the Lost Podcast poster. So head on over. You can check it out on our website, RaidersoftheLostPodcast.com, to check out these movie posters, which are linked up with MoviePosters.com. Again, use our special promo code, Raiders15, to get 15% off your order today. And I think besides the betrayal, it's also the suffering that Silva went through because he was betrayed by M, who justifiably turned him in because... Again, he was running his own missions with against China, and he was he was creating potential wars probably with what he was doing, and he wasn't really he was actually betraying M and MI six before M betrayed him, and then so M betrayed him, got six agents out of captivity and, and put him in, and he explains how he was a prisoner for five months and then being tortured and he kept her secrets, and then it's not until then he finally realized that she was the M she was the one that betrayed him. And then he went into his cyanide capsule inside his tooth, broke it open, and he didn't die from the cyanide. And we have that graphic scene where it's, it's the phenomenal scene where it's Javier and Judy Dench and their characters kind of the first time they've seen each other in years. And he removes his, his gum in, in a plate inside of his mouth, and you see what his face actually has become. And, and he, he kind of like says, like, look what you've created. And I, I can't always tell if, if he says mother or voila. I think he's saying mother. When he's I think he says mother. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. He just doesn't have his teeth in. But he's like, this is your creation. And so, he, again, he's blaming M for what he is and saying that she created him and changed his nature, whereas James rejects that entire hypothesis. James's storyline in this film is easily the, the biggest roller coaster arc any of his previous films have had. And what happens is, so basically the first act of the film, he comes back and then he goes through the regimental examinations of seeing if he's fit for duty, and he, he fails all the exams, but unbeknownst to him, M passes him and uh, allows him to go on the mission. And so the, the other leaders like Mallory at MI6, they don't want him in. They, they want to push him out. Uh, he's too old. And so Bond is uh, motivated to prove them wrong, to show them that I'm still James Bond. I'm still the same person. I can do this. And he does do this. He succeeds, and he reaches the highest high of the movie where he hunts down Patrice in, uh, in Shanghai. In Shanghai. And they have that phenomenal action fight sequence in, uh, on that glass building and has that neon lighting behind them. It's one of the most beautiful action sequences ever filmed. And Deacon's obviously just crushed this scene. 
And then um, after this, he he finds the, the the casino chip that leads him to Macau. He communicates with Severine and, and forms a plan with her, kills her henchmen, and then successfully finds a way of tracking down the unknown bad guy, the main villain. So he reaches this point in, uh, about, and gets him captured. He reaches this high point in the film where he did it. He proved everyone wrong. He, he overcame his adversity and proved that he was still James Bond. But it shows that it was uh, this short-lived kind of pre-planned victory that was part of Silva's plan, which allowed him to succeed, which began this downward spiral after the second half of the film where James and M lose everything eventually. And so it's a great transition to, to peak and think that he claimed victory, whereas he was actually um, being set up by Silva. Yeah, and we'll get to the third act in a minute. I just want to go back a little bit because that Shanghai skyscraper fight scenes, that's one of my favorite scenes in all James Bond's films. And it, it's great because... The scene when he's he's basically he's following Patrice from the airport and up that elevator and again we're talking about this motif of James Bond's lost a step and he's he's kind of an old man in this young game he's he's getting older and he's not as strong or as fast or as accurate with the gun as he used to be and he, but it doesn't stop him from trying and when we see the motif again where he's hanging on the bottom of the elevator and his arm gives out and he can't hold on with both arms anymore he's almost gonna fall and and but we do have this phenomenal fight that you just brought up that Roger Deakins shot on the skyscraper with all these glass windows and that's when there there's the assassination that takes place across the other skyscraper and there's a mm. crazy fact about this this fight on the skyscraper in shanghai where daniel craig he actually bought a pair of leather gloves offset on some random day and brought them in he asked if he could wear them as in in this scene in this fight scene on top of the skyscraper and obviously sam man is like yeah that's fine let's do it and so he wore the gloves and obviously he wins that fight and that's where he obviously gets in contact visually with Severine. And so everything was fine. And then they're in editing three months later and they're going through the footage and they realize that James Bond wearing gloves in this movie doesn't make sense because the gun that he is given to him by Q only reads his palm. It reads his palm. That's the only way it fires. So no one else could fire because it's a cool little gadget. Like, oh, this gun only fires with your palm red, which is fun. And it sets up the scene later with the Komodo dragons where the gun doesn't fire when the other guy tries to shoot him. But it's not very practical because in case James Bond is wearing gloves, he can't even fire his own gun. So they had to actually, they contemplated reshooting this entire action sequence, which would have cost millions of dollars. But instead they had to digitally impose and CGI hands throughout the entire scene, frame by frame of this, of this scene on in the roof of and <clears throat> the top of that skyscraper when he's fighting Patrice, the sniper, and so every frame, it's digital hands on James Bond until when Patrice is hanging out the skyscraper and, and Bond's trying to interrogate him before he falls, he's wearing the gloves again. Oh, my God. So they had to keep some of the shots in where he's wearing gloves, but they had to, next time you check it out, look it up on YouTube, he's actually got digital hands. That's crazy. Thank God most of the fight is silhouetted. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And also thank God whoever was the editor or on that team noticed that it's not doesn't make sense continuity wise. Oh my, they would have gotten torn apart for that because the gun it seems like such a cool idea. Oh, it only fires at his ha at his hand being red. But like, what, what if, if he's, it's cold? What if it's chilly. <laughs> <laughs> what if he doesn't want to get like cracked ashy hands? What if he's got like blood all over his hands? Like it's not gonna read his palm. So again, it's like it's kind of like they they underthought it. They overthought it trying to seem cool and complicated with the gadgets in a. It kind of almost bit them in the ass. But again, the media went crazy and saying that 
uh, Daniel Craig almost bankrupts film Skyfall. It's like you guys oh need to relax. God. Like it's oh just a simple God. mistake. Yeah, Daniel Craig bankrupts. It's not his it. fault. It's hundred percent not Daniel Craig's fault. He's not in charge of wardrobe. He's not yeah. in charge of scripts. And he just suggested of... it. He's an actor, so it's hundred percent not his fault. Yeah. Oh my God, that's funny. That's Dude, crazy. Next time you check it out, you gotta look at his hands. They're clearly digital. And something that's not related to the story or the film itself, but uh, is a great aspect to the movie is Adele's song Skyfall. Which I think is, I think it is the best Bond song, and it's got an amazing intro. The animation is fantastic, and it helps tell the story actually of of Bond's conflicts and struggles for the in themes of the film. And I think it's a beautiful song, beautiful opening. Um, they really knocked it out of the park. And then also, it's very mysterious. What does Skyfall mean? I remember the. It's a great title. It's a great, like it catches your attention. Skyfall, and you're trying to figure out from the marketing. But it's like hard to tell. And then the whole first act of the movie, you're like, oh, what is Skyfall? And then there's that um, examination psychology test in, in MI6's underground lab. Wear association. Yeah, the wear association test. And um, the psychologist says Skyfall. And then Bond says done. And he leaves the room. So it's a very mysterious word um, that obviously has uh, emotional impact on Daniel, on, <laughs> on James Bond. Uh, he doesn't want to associate with it. And he doesn't even want to talk about it. So it's very intriguing, and then we find out um, in the second half of the film, in the third act of the film, that Skyfall refers to the estate that he grew up in. And I thought it was so great to to bring his past and his childhood and his upbringing into this movie because it's something that had never been touched on before. Yeah, his past, we never know. We just know he's, like, from Scotland. I think that's the... the that's where the estate is. The main books. Yeah. That's what they, they talk about is James Bond is the character's fictional life stories he's from scotland and that's about it that's really all we know and it's great because again it's this personal element that we've never seen in james bond that's why this this almost isn't even a james bond movie in, in some ways obviously we have the cool suits we got the aston martin we got he does go to bed with one woman um the martini um the martini shaken not stirred which actually is a less strong drink so stirred is you don't ever want to shake uh liquor fyi it dilutes it but I guess James Bond's cool enough that he can just take it like that. It's fine. Um, and he so, likes it chilly. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have, obviously, the epic action set pieces and everything. But again, this is a, a character study, in a way, of James Bond and, he, and everything he goes through. And, and, and one of my other favorite elements about, the, about this film is, is Mallory, Ray Fiennes' character. And he's so cool because, obviously, it's Ray Fiennes' Voldy, but this character is... You don't really know whose side he's on. He seems almost like a villain the first time you watch it. No matter what, because he played Voldemort, you always assume he's, there's yeah. a chance he's a villain. Yeah, it's just always going to be in the back of your head. He's the most evil guy of all time. The most evil dark wizard to ever live. He must not be named Ray Fiennes. And he does something interesting in this, in this movie whenever he's in a scene with, with M and whenever he's in a scene with James. Where he's, Yes, he's exactly what, what Anthony's doing on camera now. He's standing very... Very tall. He's he's puffing out his chest and he has a very wide stance and he's he's kind of doing this like wannabe power dominant stance and I think it's because Mallory knows he's his time in power of MI6 is gonna come but he kind of wants it sooner and he's trying to gain some sort of power over M and James Bond to kind of run the show but he doesn't have that authority yet but he's still trying to force his way in but eventually we learn that you know Mallory he has experience in the field as well and he was a, a, a prisoner of the IRA for three months and so he he understands Bond more than Bond under, gets it until the end of the film and I think Ray Fiennes does a fantastic job as his character and I it's great seeing him having him as M now and and so with this transition like you said it's a resurrection 
it's not it wasn't daniel craig's last film as bond it's a, a new reinvention of his reinvention of bond and how they reinvented it this time is they brought back a lot of the the love of the the widely loved themes and elements of bond movies so um we got the new m and then uh, money penny ends up being the secretary to m by the end of this film which is um how it always was she wasn't always she wasn't a field agent in the previous films and but it, i love that yeah. they made her a field yeah, agent exactly first. yeah and they brought the aston martin back the old aston martin and then also they brought q back there was not a q in the daniel craig james bond movies before this there was he got gadgets but like in casino royale it's like some unnamed guy just gives him like the the injection and like and so something. for some reason he has yeah. the cardiac respirator whatever those yeah. are called inside, inside the aston the martin like well that's what a spy has i guess yeah, yeah. so there wasn't a q in part and these are elements of the bond franchise that fans love and and yes i love the 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 new world post 9/11 gritty um realistic version of bond but still one of the the perks of this movie is they brought the fun back they brought the aston martin back they brought q back they brought you know having the scene going through the gadgets it's not quite tongue in cheek like the brosnan q ones where they're like burning suit like doing crazy stuff and he's playing around with the gadgets it's but they still brought that element, those elements back, which I think really solidified it as a, a true great Bond film. Those were always kind of missing in the other Craig movies. That's interesting that you just brought up 9-11 because people might not notice, but there is basically an entire decade or genre of culture that was influenced by 9-11 because it was such a huge event and obviously devastating and, and tragic. But it did spawn uh, new ideas in art. And in cinema and and storytelling and obviously now we have a lot of these very gritty realistic films that pertain a lot to to political terrorism and and in mass international violence and so obviously it, it's almost impossible not to to notice that there was an entire shift in cinema post 9-11 in a way yeah it's not it's not like a light a giant laser that's going to blow up the earth because that's so disbelievable but like you said political terrorism that's definitely believable because it's happened so many times and it's touched all of us in a certain way. And so it, this, these movies like this, it, like you said, it's, it affected cinema on a, on a massive scale, actually. And so there is a post 9-11-esque quality to large-scale filmmaking in terms of uh, international um, political conflict involved in stories. And also, I really enjoyed uh, the smaller scope of the final act of this movie. Uh, it's not, I gotta save the world and get the girl and uh, I gotta kill the bad guy on top of some gigantic landmark or huge action set piece that's crazy, unbelievable. Uh, it was pretty much like Home Alone at, at James's <laughs> house. But I liked that aspect. It's fun. I liked it when the, the scope got smaller because it makes the stakes more personal. It's not, the world's not at, at stake. I mean, obviously, if Silva succeeds and kills Bond, it'll do terrible things but it's not like all oh, the t ticking time clock uh if this c counts down to zero there's gonna be a giant nuclear bomb it's like we've seen that a thousand times so this film stuck to the personal evaluation of bond and so in, er in order for him to overcome the conflict of the movie he has to overcome his past and they related that to the third act of the film i, I love the whole sequence at Skyfall. It's, yeah, it's great. Let's talk about it in a little bit. I want to back up to when let's back up. Silva's plan actually starts to get carried out because, like you said, he wanted to be captured. This is, again, very similar to Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight. 
Bond reaches an all-time high in the film, but he doesn't realize that it was all pre-planned ahead of time. And I love the scene with Emin Silva again, where we, we besides him showing her what's happened to him in his disfigurement from the cyanide capsule, they have this talk where and Silva, in a way, he wants, I wouldn't say that he wants an apology from M, but he wants her, I think, to acknowledge what she's done to him and what she, what he thinks that she has created with, with what he is now. And, and there's a great back and forth where Silva says that she has no remorse and, and she says that, that it's unprofessional. And it's, it's so fun because it's very similar to the back and forth that Silva had with James Bond, where, again, he's trying to... Maybe not corrupt her like he was with Bond, but he's he's in a way he doesn't have to have this exchange with her because he already knows he's going to escape. But I think he's enticing her more to go through the laptop as soon as possible to get her to get him to plug into their hack into yeah. the system to release the the cages and unlock all the doors. Because as soon as she walks away, he's just laughing and then kind of looking at the structural hold of the walls. I also think that M actually does feel remorse when she. She feels remorse after what she did to James. I think that their relationship is obviously a much more close. It's much closer and more personal than she ever had with Silva. So I think obviously she hides it, but I think she was absolutely uh, really affected by thinking that she killed James Bond. Mallory even points that out earlier in the film during uh, his his uh, testing at MI6 when MI6 is underground. and And this is when... M passes James despite failing all of his tests, and she's obviously basically forging his his certification to go back into the field. And Mallory's like, "You don't see it. You don't see what even I can see, and I'm not in the field." And she he says something like, "You you have feelings for him, and which is something that you shouldn't have when you're in charge of expendable agents." And so you're right; she does, I think, care for him, and I think that's also that also James cares for M despite calling her a b word during that interrogation. <laughs> We're trying to get uh, more views, so we don't like to say the B word here. Yeah, guys. we don't swear anymore. Well, you say a whole lot. No, I didn't. Spotify <laughs> doesn't like that. All right. But <laughs> and despite that, M was the person who authorized the trigger to be pulled on James, despite him being on top of the train with the with Patrice. He still cares about her, and that's one of the reasons he comes back. And she also knows that even though Bond isn't what he used to be, she still knows that he's capable of of achieving what other agents can achieve. He has that, he's got heart, man. No, but th but James Bond is special. You know what I mean? He, he can do things that no one else can. And so she knows that if, if he's pushed to the line, he's able to overcome anything. And just like how James is being tested at MI6, M eventually has to testify at Parliament over losing the names and also because Silver starts to leak some of the names, which results in some of the undercover agents to be assassinated. And so that's when Silver tries to spring his trap and tries to kill M himself at the trial. And we have that that great moment where he, he has the gun on her for a second and he's like just smiling with Savers pleasure. It. And he, yeah, he, I don't know why he, he could just pull the trigger and end it, but it's like he just wants to enjoy it. I think he just I think he just enjoys the look on her face, the yeah. look on her face. You yeah. know what I mean? And then but that hesitation and taking in the moment and enjoying it is what makes him fail because Mallory takes the bullet for her because of the opportunity he gave them. And this is the moment where you talked about in, the, in earlier where James hits his all-time high in terms of the climax and he's achieved everything but then loses everything. And then so MI6 is destroyed. M and Bond lose everything. Parliament's under attack. So Bond takes M obviously to his childhood home in, in Skyfall. And this is where 
again, we're, we're getting into the old ways. He gets the old Aston Martin out of the garage, and we have this really long third act, which is actually, it's one of my favorite parts of the film, just setting the stage for this. It's like five to ten minutes of them just getting to Skyfall and getting everything ready and kind of... But you love them sharing scenes together. Yeah, and beautiful landscape shots of, of Scotland. I mean, it's just phenomenal how beautiful that country is. And, and the, thing, the strength of it is we never really got to see much of them other than task for, uh, assigning tasks and... Being like, upset with James. Yeah, being upset and then, like, uh, communications, that's it. But now she's essential to the storyline, and we have personal a personal investment in her as well. And then Mallory and Q, they we learn Ma- Mallory's a good guy at this point, and him and Q help Bond. They're leaving those breadcrumbs for Silva to find them on purpose. And one of my favorite lines in the sequence is when M asks where they're going, Bond says, back in time. Because they have to, because in this situation, they've lost to Silva. Silva has outpowered them. He's he they're outmatched in this against Silva in this realm of modern technology and technological terrorism. They can't compete with him anymore. And so they have to take that advantage away from Silva in order to have a chance at defeating him. Hence the old ways. So they're they're really double downing on the old ways to be victorious against the new ways, which is Skyfall represents the old ways. That's why it's like just a house. They're using old guns and knives and and setting up booby traps because it's the old way of fighting and hunting. And so it's the old versus new in the third act. And that's where, uh, what would you call him, a caretaker? He's the groundskeeper. And that's when uh, the groundskeeper shows up, and he also has that that line: "The old ways are sometimes the best." And he's he's talking about the guns and the knives on the table. And played by Albert Finney, by the way. They actually, I think they they thought about having Sean Connery do this as like a uh, cameo, but it would have ruined it. It would have taken us. People would have been it. laughing. Yeah, because it, it, it just ruined yeah. it. It takes you out of it. I mean, that's James Bond playing not James Bond in a James yeah. Bond movie. It wouldn't make sense. It would have been way too distracting. So, but I mean, they still have him. He does like a great almost Sean Connery impression with that Scottish accent. Yeah, Albert Finney's awesome. And then we also learned that Albert Finney had a uh, his character had a major part in raising James, and um, it's fun to see the home that James Bond grew up in, and you can just imagine a little boy running around that house and learning to hunt, and you can see that he probably developed many of his skills as a child on this property. And I love how he, when he first sees Kincaid, he's like, "God, you're still alive." <laughs> <laughs> but this is the ultimate. Um, This represents James Bond facing his past and accepting his past and confronting it, something he's been avoiding probably all his life, um, which is why he's always been a drug user. He's always been an alcoholic, um, and he's always had trouble dealing with grief and with his past and with his personal issues. And now he's finally confronting them head on by bringing the conflict to his doorstep. And it's a great action set piece. Obviously, the opening scene's phenomenal. We have the great fight in Shanghai and then and uh, the casino with the Komodo dragons. And, and this one's just so much fun because it also made for a great um, honest trailers yeah. video because they make great uh, basically joke videos about movies. Mm. And it obviously they tore this one apart with like the Home Alone setting. But it, it's, it works for me. I think it's very cool and creative and fun. And even though and we also get like other aspects like the secret chambers and hiding under, under the uh, going through the tunnels underground. And then it's just an epic lit and epically shot landscape um scene with with uh silva uh framed with with the burning buildings and then and deacons used the same technique he would later use in 1917 with the burning church and the burning house in skyfall um that was cgi and what they instead did was they set up this gigantic led tower 
that had to have been like maybe 80 feet tall of LED lights and they put plenty of fog in the setting and and then they CGI'd the burning house in post-production for the film, but um, it's this beautiful lighting setup that had this amazing glowing effect for the entire landscape because otherwise there's no light and then just watching these characters um, chasing each other through the landscape towards the church at the at, towards the chapel, beautiful cinematography and solidified um, why like mainstream audiences finally getting to see the genius of Roger Deakins. And again, the chapel we got the motif of resurrection here, and it's a it's a tough scene because of course Bond succeeds in and kills Silva, but not without M taking a lethal wound from a bullet. And after Silva dies with the knife, the old ways, the old tactics. M dies in James's arms, and it's very sad because Judy Dench has played this character for seven movies, and she's kind of been the main draw to the films besides the lead character. Almost thirty years. Yeah, it's a long time. It's a lot of movies, and we, we've we've watched her grow elderly in in the in this franchise, and it's sad to see her go. And it's the first time I think we've really ever seen James Bond cry for somebody in this film, because of course he cries in Casino Royale. I'm pretty sure. We could be wrong, but it, that even shows you even more vulnerability of this character who's the archetype. You know, James Bond is a superhero, is the ultimate macho man, but I love how they kind of stripped that down from him in this movie. And it's a great ending because we get Eve and Bond to have their first formal introduction of him, him at learning. At the office. Yeah, yeah, at the office where he learns her name and learns that, learns that she's Eve Moneypenny. And obviously this is an iconic character in the James Bond world. And then this is an interaction that happened in every other James Bond film in the first act. Yeah. But I think it's just so much better because we've seen what, what um, Eve is capable of. And she was a former field agent. So it, it just shows that like, I bet you she's going to have a lot more to do action wise in future James Bond films. And I can't wait to see her in no time to die. And also Mallory now is taken over as M, which is great because Ray finds is phenomenal. Yeah. And I love this movie. I think it's, I think it's, gotta be the best james bond film ever made and it's easily one of the best um international espionage films ever made as well it's thrilling it's epic it's beautifully made well acted and it's just a fantastic story and i I think they just absolutely knocked it out of the park and um they changed up the director for the next film kari fukunara is making has made no time to die and i'm very curious what they do because it's going to be daniel craig's final chapter I hope I hope it's good because I was disappointed, obviously, with Quantum of Solace, and then I was very disappointed with Spectre. I thought Spectre was gonna kind of take this this ball that was rolling after Skyfall, where where you know it's kind of creating its own trends in the James Bond world rather than kind of copying trends around and, and, and you know just staying cool or what's going on with the fads in terms of storytelling and movies. But you know, Spectre was a very disappointing film for me. Um, obviously, I think if they spent Half the amount of time they spent preparing that opening shot, long take, with developing the story, it would have been a lot better. <laughs> the script. Um, because I'm pretty sure they were writing while they were shooting and just had to do a bunch Daniel, of different- Daniel Craig was literally helping write scenes with Sam Mendes because there was a writer's strike mm. when they made that film. Yeah, so, you know, that, that movie is, is kind of a weak second and third act. And, you know, they just, I think they kind of wasted Christoph Waltz as a, Christoph Waltz as a, willing, a villain. And it, it just didn't do it for me. And, you know, Quantum Solace, there are cool parts, but I think it, it didn't have that artistic uh, uh, theme in those motifs that are in Skyfall. Yeah, and with Spectre, it started out really well, but they I think they just went a little too tongue-in-cheek with the villainous aspect of it, a little too classical James Bondy, whereas uh, Javier's Silva perfectly balances between campy and realistic. And I think uh, 
No Time to Die will be really good because Kari Fukunara is a really great director. Uh, he made True Detective and he made um, Beast, uh, Beast of Southern Wild, uh, Beast of No Nation uh, with um, Idris Elba. And so I think that it's going to be, I, I have a good feeling about it. I do too. And Rami Malek's a great villain. But again, I, I just love James Bond. I love Daniel Craig as James Bond. He's my favorite Bond. I know I'm biased because he's basically been the prime of my life. He's been James Bond, and and he's been the the Bond of this new, the first reinvention of him with with Casino Royale. You know, Craig changed Bond with these films, and Bond is a lot more physical. And again, we have that vulnerability. He's he doesn't exactly look like the prototypical James Bond. He's He's got the blonde hair, and he has like a very rugged look. He's not like a very pretty man, like like Pierce Brosnan is. And so I think Daniel Craig was a the best Bond there ever was. And I, I'm curious to see who they choose for the next one. We've talked about it on other content who we'd like to see, but I th- I'm sure they'll pick someone phenomenal to do it. I think Chris Nolan's going to direct the next. Can you imagine if Chris Nolan directed a James Bond it's movie? Something he's always wanted to do. You mean, I wonder if they let him pick. I bet you if he does it, he'd probably pick Tom Hardy to do it. Well, the producers will pick the actor, but I mean, obviously he would probably love to have Tom Hardy as the Bond, but he's a huge fan of Bond and he's always considered directing Bond movies and he was even considered for directing um, this one as well, this one as well before Sam Mendes signed on, but he he always, he always was asked each time before Sam Mendes on, hey, do you want to make the Bond movie next one? But he always said... I'll I'll do Bond when they need me because they're doing fine right now. So he's like, I'll do it if it's a reinvention. Oh, maybe then. then so that's I, why I think it'd be awesome. Be that'd be so cool. <laughs> Obviously, Michael Caine's gonna be in it. It's gonna be backwards. <laughs> it's gonna be backwards in time. <laughs> <laughs> How about we move on to some fun facts about Skyfall? Let's do it. So uh, when this movie was coming out, the a L- London Olympics were going on at the same time, and after receiving a personal invitation from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Danny Craig appeared as James Bond in this awesome, fun promotional video for this movie for the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympic Games in London, where he like shows up at the palace and he kind of is James Bond, and, and the Queen even acts with him for a little bit, and then he like escorts her to the helicopter. And it, it's so cool and fun to see like a fictional character played by James, played by Daniel Craig interacting with the queen on camera and i think it's the first acting role she's ever had it's really funny it worked really well the passport used by daniel craig was not created by the prop department but an authentic document as issued by the british home office according to producer michael g wilson everything from the paper print photograph and jacket are entirely genuine on james bond's official passport however as a security measure the passport is encoded with information that would instantly flag its improper use in any official transaction so for the opening scene of this film, there are 85 versions of James Bond's Tom Ford suit tailor-made for the opening. Um, 30 were made for Daniel Craig and 30 for his stunt double. Each version of the suit was specifically designed for a particular part of the scene in the opening sequence. For example, when Craig was riding the motorcycle, a suit with longer sleeves was worn so that it wouldn't raise up his forearms. Um, they also had a way down his tie when he was riding the motorcycle otherwise it'd be flying and flapping in his face and so they basically just tailored different suits to whatever sequence of the film was being shot and like the hand-to-hand combat ones he's wearing a very loose thin wool woolen silk so that he can uh fight and jump easily that's awesome my favorite one of my favorite parts of the movie is after the part of the train gets destroyed by the tractor and then he he lands in inside of the train 
And the whole thing just is like falling apart behind him. And then he just stands up straight and fixes his cuffling and keeps walking. And he also has a bullet hole through his yeah. chest, too. But he, of course, James Bond will fix his cuffling. <laughs> all right, that wraps our James Bond Skyfall episode. We hope you all enjoyed this. Make sure to check out our brand new website that we just launched, RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com, where you can check out all of our links to all of our pages and sites. You can find our merch, our movie posters, which you can buy now anytime. Use all of our coupon codes. That's, they're all there with our sponsors on the webpage. Hope you guys enjoyed and enjoyed this episode. Take care, everyone. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast.